Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dolls of Our Lives. That's right, if you've not seen our social media, we've decided to rebrand as we approach our 100th episode. This is Lucky Episode 99. We're so excited to get to 100, and thanks to every single listener who helped us get here. We're so excited to take you with us into this new era. We're also so thankful to listeners who suggested this name, which is also the name of our book coming out in fall 2023. The book will be called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. At the end of the show, I'll share our new social handles, but we'd appreciate your help and support in spreading the word. Thanks to everyone who continues to support our show and this community. We've got a new name and logo, but we're the same show. We're really excited about this change and the parts of our show that don't change, like the fact that we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. So even though this is a happy announcement, you know, I will be throwing it to a long dead singer who is about to bum us all out with a historically appropriate hit song. Bing, take it away. Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm Bing Crosby. Wait, no, I'm still Allison. Wow. And we just heard some of Bing Crosby's brother, Can I Spare a Dime? It's actually a relief you're not Bing Crosby because I got weirdly invested once into like learning about his life. Have you ever gone on that journey? I have not, but this just brought back a visceral memory of one of our beloved professors who would refer to searching the internet as using the Bing because he was not an adopter of Google. He was brave. You know what? He was, this was the same guy who turned off um, John Adams when he saw the belt buckles were wrong for the period. And I respect that and his wife, um, a fellow PhD professor, but um, give credit, giving credit where it's due. But like Bing Crosby was kind of like not great, Allison. And like, that was a rough thing for me to learn as a person whose favorite Christmas movie is White Christmas. But I mean, truly, I just watched that for Rosemary Clooney. Like I'm a huge Rosemary Clooney fan, but he, so he was, had one marriage and then he had a second marriage and he had kids in both marriages. And in the first marriage, he had like four sons. He gave them trust funds that they could not cash in until they turned like 80. Whoa. Okay, so he's learning perhaps different lessons or same lessons as some people in the Kit Kit Ridge universe. Yes. I am always fascinated. So, like, he was really, really hot in 1932, which is where her journey starts. I'm always curious about people who do very well during the Depression. And I remember that it was always a thing for things like history fair. Someone would always do the circus in the 1930s. They were like, what you haven't considered is that the circus was popping in the 1930s. People were sad. The circus was not. I don't know if that's what I would have turned to myself. Like, do you find joy from the circus? 
I really enjoy a circus. I really enjoy a fair. I have had a good time at the circus. Like, I'm going to be real. And it was a dream of my life to visit the Ringling Museum in Florida and to see their circus uh, model collection, to see their art collection. And that's a dream I have checked off twice. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you asked me, like, what, you know, what's going on with you, pop culture, and you know, I have different answers of like things that I'm watching. I liked Do Revenge. I forgot my big headline, which is I became a notary public this week. What? You did? I did. As part of like... Can I ask what inspired this? Like what's happening? When a young gal of the age of 34 and 364 days is like deciding how to spend her last day of 34th dumb, I feel like the only answer is to go to a notary do your notarial oath, get everything set up. Like now I'm equipped to get my stamp. They've processed my payment. So I'm like ready and avail. Like I do kind of think I'm internalizing some things from Kit already, <laughs> like nonstop hustle culture. Like what can I do to make an extra, you know, like 10 bucks here and there become a notary? Is that what, okay. I have like a hundred questions. Like what inspired you to do this? How, what's involved in becoming a notary? Like, do you have to take a class or is it literally like, here's my check. I'm ready to take an oath. Give me the stamp. It's somewhere between those. So you have to take an online quiz, but it's honor system. And in my case, I had to go to another notary, take an oath. Um, I plan on getting the full manual and like taking notes because I want to take my duties seriously. There's different range of tasks that you can take on, but I've had experiences with notaries that have been extremely positive and it led me to want to be one myself so I can give other people positive notary experiences because it's like, think of like what leads you to need a notary. It's never great. You're never like, wow, everything in my life is like going really amazing. I have no bureaucratic hiccups. It's like, I have this annoying task or difficult task and there's a notary like an angel with a stamp. And maybe you hand them $20 and maybe you don't. Like, I'm not even sure I'm going to charge. But I noticed that there was a dearth of recognizable notaries in my area. And I was like, this is something that I can do. You stepped into that industry. Wow. Like Kit's dad almost should have pursued that. You would wonder. Wow. I mean, do you feel different now that you're a notary? Have you have you performed the act? Like, have you notarized anything? I'm not remotely ready. Like, I have a four-year okay. commish. I have four years to kind of work this out. It's like a presidential term. Like, you don't just run headlong into it. I do feel like it's... It's not for life. You have to keep re-upping it? No, and nor should it be. It's like, this should be something that you're oh, constantly wow. keeping up with. Like, I don't feel like I have all the knowledge that I should have yet to perform the full duties. Like, I have done the bare minimum okay. to get me to my place to get my stamp. The woman who did my oath with me was like, hot tip, like, get one that doesn't have, um, you know, two spaces for the end of the years, and you can keep it longer. I was like, wow, great tip. Like, notaries helping notaries, you know? So, I mean, you know, maybe that's my next venture. I don't know, but I do feel like, you know, if we're going to be spending these next three months in the Great Depression, it's like we might see a lot of problematic views on how to survive a depression or a recession. We may learn something useful. I don't know that Kit has. I don't know that we will. You should make a poster that's like, brother, do you need a notary? Yeah. And then it's a picture of you with your stamp. Or sister or anybody. It's a very niche ad. Like, you'd have to know our show and... yeah. 
you know, your qualifications, but I feel like there is an audience out there. I mean, I can't tell you what needs and what needs to be notarized because I guess I'm I haven't like achieved enough adult <laughs> things, but you know, I'm sure, you know, maybe there's some good times. I don't know. Like what's in the game? I hope it's not a true circus for you, but that's it sneaks wow. up on I'm, like, you. Stunned. Like the need for a notary is not something that you expect, which is why it's such a valuable asset to our society that's my that's my opinion like i'm not i do like fully you've gone you've been a notary for like less than a week week, two weeks yeah and you're already like 110 into this yeah i mean i like to believe that if any of us if given the opportunity would become a notary like to take on the duties of the office okay so i have my certificate you know i have i have all my impressive congratulations thanks um I don't know what the appropriate thing to say is when someone becomes a notary, but did you listen to like Notorious or anything like that where you're like, it hits different now? No, but I did spend a lot of time reading through the basic manual and being like, am I ready? Like, could I ever be ready? You know, like thinking about the Allison I was and the Mary you were when these books came out. It's like mm-hmm. we were looking at the beef between NSYNC and Backstreet Boys 9-11 hadn't happened yet. The dot-com bubble wow. was just happening. We didn't know what that meant. Wow. Here we are 22 years later, and we're prepared for this. Yeah. I mean, you're a notary. I don't really have, like, a, a skill that I can offer society in that way. Like, I'm not prepared to perform state duties, but <laughs> I'm here. I'm encouraging of it. Like, I feel like, wow, world's your world's your oyster, I guess. Like, this is this is wild. I met a woman this weekend at my job and she had on a polo and was like clearly in town for a conference. And she was like, yeah, I'm an actuary. And I do believe like, I think something powerful and beautiful is like, bring that energy to anything you do. Like part of this story we read for today is Kit trying to get out of like basic tasks that she's been assigned to for want of doing other things. I respected the heck out of that woman being like, yeah, I'm here for a gathering of actuaries. She just loves it. I mean, it's like finding, you know, joy in small things. Like, what's that Mary Oliver line? Like, what you should do in life is just prepare to feel joy and be amazed all the time. It's like, that's what you should seek out. And it's like, hey, if you find that being an actuary, hanging with other actuaries, like, that's cool. Like, did I start crying this week when... Anna showed me like a clip of the Mariners winning a game to be in the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. Yeah. Am I invested in that? Not at all. But I was like, you know what? I'm so happy for you. Like Anna's a lifelong Mariners fan for no reason. We're from Connecticut, but (laughs) there was all these amazing tweets where people were like trolling them. And I kind of felt bad where they were like the last time they were in the playoffs, like there were over 5,000 blockbuster locations in operation in the U S because it was like 2000. 2001 and now it's like you know obviously i think there's like one in alaska maybe or something but you know people find joy in whatever and it's like that's great that's beautiful kit did that kit did that the world is folding back on itself she did that and i do have a theory about kit that i'll get into later that did bring me joy to imagine that's sort of like a headcanon fanfic i'm writing for myself but you shared with me like or you brought up like songs that came out in 2000 when this book did and I'm staring at this list and it's like I am going back in time and it's like it wasn't a simpler time and the music was certainly not you know better or worse but it's like this was our time like I look at all these hit songs top songs of that year and it's like how do you improve on this I don't know oops I did it again (laughs) I mean 
If you don't have a play in the middle of your song where you're referencing the movie Titanic for kind of no reason, like, I can't help you. If you don't understand why that's powerful, I can't, like, hit pause on this show. So, I mean, multiple strands of music were literally different in that era because in the next two years, obviously, country music is going to change drastically, right? Like, the infusion of, like, patriotic music in a very specific kind of way. But it's, like... D'Angelo is on here, Everclear, Three Doors Down, like things that we haven't necessarily thought of. Pink was still in her hip hop moment. Yeah. Most girls, like anyone, Save the Last Dance. Thank you. I hope you dance came out that year, Leanne Womack. And it's like, I didn't know and she didn't know in 2000 that I would somewhat inaccurately quote that song for many years (laughs) to come, including today. Um, you know, just proud of her. I, ho- I wonder what she's doing. Hope she's okay. Also, just like R.I.P. Loretta Lynn died today, the day we're recording. Yes, she did. Thinking about her, love Colminer's daughter. That would be a great Patreon sometime. But also, Who Let the Dogs Out came out that year, Allison. And I don't remember that song, but I do remember that some reason, for some reason, the Baja men were convinced to, we were talking about the Disney Channel and stuff off air and that era they were convinced to do a re-record of that song and they changed the title to who let snow white out it is the most unhinged three minutes if you need to take yourself on a ride it makes no sense they name check all the dwarfs it's it's so much and i'm like you guys just didn't care like you just i don't know what the check was from disney but it was like (laughs) okay that's fine like i don't care So we queried aloud last week, why weren't we into Kit Kidridge when she came out? And now I think I have the answer, which is in the year that these books were like being put on shelves for the first time, Disney Channel gave us The Color of Friendship, Rip Girls, Ooh. Miracle in Lane 2, Stepsister from Planet Weird, and my probably Classic. personal favorite. Now keep in mind, Xenon was not out yet. That's 2001. Probably my personal favorite film, and there is a very similar novel. That summer, they released Quince, and I loved that That film. That was a great one. That was a good one. I loved that. And that book and a book of a similar nature gave me this irrational fear that a, a group of multiples would be thrust upon my family. I never had a sense of like like why this would occur, but this was a trope wow. for girls our okay. age that like your parents, just as you're entering your adolescence, are going to surprise you and bring home multiples. And like there was surprise. like no way that could have happened in my family. And yet this planted a seed where it's like, but what if I became big sister to Quince? What if? Plus the John and Kate of it all. Whoa. You know, like the world was different. Yeah. We didn't know. We were we were invested in that for different reasons. And, and you know, also just thinking about like, yeah, it is interesting that we were interested in like multiples, like our culture was with John and Kate plus eight. And we're still doing that, I guess. TLC haven't dropped down on their program because it's too bleak for me sometimes. Like I did catch some of Sister Wives and I'm like, that's too dark for this program. I can't speak on that right now. Like what is happening in that family is insane. But you know, I'm glad that some things from 2000 like are still with us. Like some of these groups are still touring. Backstreet Boys, Bow Wow is still out there. He's never forget his iconic moment when he tweeted he was on a private jet and someone sitting behind him on Delta was like, this dude sitting ahead of me on Delta. And he had to like walk that back. That was rough, but he's still doing it. But Lindsay Lohan announced she's doing a Christmas movie on Netflix. 
you know what? She never really faded away and she's making yet another comeback. I'm happy for her. Well, while we're talking about her, you know, obviously we have mentioned before that we find a lot of like important overlap between like visuals and iconography and Molly and Britney Spears. The fact that this song was like released at the same time as this book, how much is this Kit coming to learn her family's true situation? How was I supposed to know that something wasn't right here? And then Kit is still trying to grapple with like capitalism versus something else. She's like, I still believe. But I, you know, I I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there. Well, it's also like even that Titanic sketch when she refers to the old lady dropping the jewelry and the the necklace in the ocean during Titanic. It's like maybe that was Kit. And it was like a metaphor. Like she had this life of affluence and she had no idea and it slipped through her fingers. And now we're here in the depression and Bing Crosby nor anyone else (laughs) is going to give her or dad a dime. That's where we're at. I do feel like Bing Crosby wrote that song and profited off of it so that men born around the time of this book could walk around with tiny mics and ask people inane questions and say, would you rather have $10 or give the next person $20? No, thank you. I... No. Okay, we're no. we're going to get into Kit Kidridge. I'm ready. Kit learns a lesson. Did we? We'll never answer. You never underestimate Valtrip. No. Perennial <laughs> lesson. Let's do it. Okay, so I found what I'm going to describe as an amusing summary, and then I'm going to read a real one. I just love this. In Kit Learns a Lesson, her older brother gets a job rather than attend college, and Kit helps her mother clean. Additional boarders have moved in, and there is more work than ever. When a classmate's taunts lead to an altercation, Sterling, Kit, and her best friend, Ruthie, parentheses, are punished. Um, that's, like, not a great description of this book, but no. I I found it funny, and I wanted to share it. Um, so yes. I'm going to go with the description they use on, like, the second edition of these books. Kit hopes Dad will find a new job soon. Then things in the Kidridge household can go back to the way they were before Dad lost his business in the Depression. Kit won't have to get up early every morning before school to do chores for bothersome boarders, the people who pay to live in the Kidridge's house, and she will have more time to write her newspapers. But when Kit helps deliver her class's Thanksgiving food basket to a soup kitchen, she learns a surprising lesson about being thankful. Is that what you think happens in this book? No, okay. I don't think so. <laughs> that was a really weird... All of these summaries are weird. Like, the one from Kit Book 1, this one. I mean, honestly, I'm noticing that Britney Spears' Lucky also came out in 2000. Like, they should have just put the lyrics to that as the summary of this book. I mean, it's as close as anything else <laughs> you've read, honestly. It's like, I don't know. Before we go on into the book, and I do want to get into it, I just have been thinking a lot about her typewriter And the fact that it's like the typewriter has to go in the closet and then come out and it's like, okay, what's going on with that? But keeping in mind, like, let's say she has this typewriter. She keeps it through life. Allison, are you open to believing a possible fanfic in which she moves from her beloved Ohio to Cabot Cove, Maine, and by her retirement is casually writing mysteries? Her husband's dead and she changes her name to Jessica Fletcher. Your thoughts? Dead in uh, quotes and yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, 
I mean, I was just thinking about it. And I was like, she does bring Jessica Fletcher energy as a child. The timing is right. So I think something that is very interesting and obviously like people who love Kit love her very deeply and it has been awesome to see people responding to us getting to Kit, you know, like finally Mm -hmm. for some people. What is also kind of, you know, sticking in the back of my mind, um, a message we'd gotten weeks ago before we started Kit was someone saying, you know, there are a lot of sort of corrosive or not super not super positive ideas that are kind of embedded in this book. And I think that there is an overlap between Molly learns a lesson, Felicity learns a lesson, and this book, which is young girls being taught to kind of like hustle and enable a family to get through a crisis in like a very, very specific way. And I also, I'm bringing this up because I see someone in Kit who never stops working, who no matter how old she is, how much she's accumulated, is never able to enjoy money again, is never able to enjoy comfort Mm -hmm. again. And someone who ends up with a really uh, complicated and possibly toxic set of ideas about work. And I think we can get into that more. Um, But I think part of what's strange about that description is I don't think that this is a book about a young girl learning to be grateful. I think this is a very actually sharp and smart book about a girl finally coming to an awareness over a three-month window that things are bad. Things are going to get worse and and that things have changed. And I think that's something Valerie Tripp does very well in her second books. The girls start to really understand that life is not going back to how it was. It's not just one bad meal of turnips. It's not just one tea party that's bad. It's not just one breakfast that kind of sucks. Like life is different now. And I think she drops that hammer book too every time. I think that's definitely true. I mean, I... I liked the part of this book where we see kind of like what feels like a very accurate way that a child would process figuring out this truth about her dad and then this like bigger truth about herself and her family. I don't really like that. I'm just going to put this out there. Is Valor Republican? I don't know. Let me explain. I think quite the opposite, actually. Well, I mean, what you get in this book is like actually messaging that, you know, through Ruthie, who likes fairy tales, there's like constant messaging that like you have to work really hard to deserve help. Mm. And instead of like everyone deserves help, point blank, period, to quote Haley Bieber on Call Your Daddy, which I didn't listen to, but heard referred to, and now I feel cool or not. But, you know, it's like there's, I think that there's some messaging here that's like we're seeing, and we can talk about this, like how people, like private aid organizations were responsible for a lot of aid at this point in the depression and earlier. And we see the dad and the whole family like benefiting from that. But Ruthie, I think, offers like some really not helpful pair, like messaging drawing from fairy tales, which might be purposeful about how fairy tales, you know, not necessarily offer the best like storylines necessarily for women in particular. But the fact there's a point in the book when she's like, you have to work to deserve a wish to come true. Yes. Because she keeps like referring to like, a wish coming true like kid has a wish that her dad will get a job and everything will be okay and then she's worried that she wasn't specific enough in the wish and on page 17 she said ruthie says you usually have to work hard to deserve a wish to come true you have to do something brave or impossible or make a giant noble sacrifice and you have to wait wishes take time 
And, you know, that's very childlike. And she's obviously like, drawing on her very like sincere love of fairy tales. But I kind of feel like as an adult reading this book, it's like there's never a moment in the book when somebody is like, yeah, that's good about fairy tales. And in real life, everyone deserves help. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no adult who enters the chat to be like, not saying don't read fairy tales, just saying maybe also think about this idea with fairy tales. Like everyone deserves help, period. You don't, it's not just about who's deserving and who's not. Because to me, that screams like 90s, hmm. you have to work to get welfare instead of like everyone deserving it. Which I, I think know. I think is very much an idea of 90s neoliberalism. Like I think if this is a book yeah. about anything, it's very much like a Clintonian liberalism that in some ways even spills right. over into the Bush administration in 2000 for a period of time. But I think this is very much like, I kept thinking, you know, as this book is coming out, there is the ongoing like protracted difficulty over whether Al Gore won the election or George W. Bush won the election, right? So this is written in a time where it was very much like, it's a new millennium, like the soul of the country is at stake. The fact that a president is invoked in such a very specific way and it's FDR, I think this is very much a defense of a certain kind of democratic thinking, like capital D from the 90s, like trying to usher into the early 2000s. Like what works is a notion of a quote, deserving poor getting temporary support. And there's an interesting right. thing in the Kits World book and other books that I kind of picked up about the depression for kids where Herbert Hoover is painted as like evil cartoon, like, you know, bad person who doesn't get it, who doesn't get that the government is supposed to intervene in business. And I think you can make an argument that one of our struggles over the past century is the government intervenes in business all the time to the benefit of business only, right? Right. And so right. even in this book, it's like the way that FDR intervenes in the economic world is not a universally beneficial thing. And I don't know that that was being put out there. Well, I know it's not because it's not in these books in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Like I hear your point about the 90s neoliberalism. And I just think it's I mean, it's it's definitely presumes the Republican approach or more conservative approach. And I just I hate that that's in the mouth of like a child character in this book. Like it really bummed me out. But I mean, we can get into that. Like there's other stuff with Ruthie that's and every time I say Ruthie, by the way, I keep thinking about the character in Seventh Heaven, which is like my own hang up. I don't know if that keeps happening for you, but um you know there's just there's a lot in this book so we can kind of go back because we jumped in sort of like not midway but this book opens with like kit in the attic and it's november and it's cold and her brother wakes her up for school and he's going to pack trucks or something whatever job he has now and it's like you know the attic in november it's bleak it's starting to get a little cold in there it's not insulated and then we kind of like go through a typical morning in her new normal with all these borders underfoot. And she does not like that it's now a boarding house. No, we're also treated to what I think of as like a very elaborate kit at ASMR, which is like we get this like, <laughs> like, yeah, 
like oral description of we have this like plinking of the rain coming in through the roof and then we have like over and over um this like click clack of her making noise with the typewriter and i do think it's interesting that as the family is taking on more and more people to live there they don't seem to be making a lot of noise like her oral world is still very much like noises that affect her or noises that yeah. she makes and I think it's very much like a way that Valerie Tripp like pulls you into a nine-year-old's POV that even when she's like goofing around and using like a family member's socks to dust the floor, you're, I love that. you're with her only. Like, I think yeah. this is why Molly was such a draw to me. Like, you are with this girl and you are getting her subjectivity almost to like an exclusive degree like you feel her experience um and i think that you're right that the typewriter is extremely important and we also learn later in the book why it was moved it's not for the reason that kit thinks it is but kit since august it's now november FDR has been elected. She's lost something she loved, which was being able to update her father through a newspaper. And I like that in this book, like two things happen. Um, there's a bit about like penmanship and like the importance of like her schoolwork. And there's also a moment where we get Kit finding a new way to make news in the family. And I thought that was actually very cool. I thought that was really smart and a way to highlight the creativity of children that is like so raw at that age. Yeah, I like that too, even when she's reimagining the sounds of the borders into like more interesting kinds of sounds or comparisons. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I remember thinking like, this is really clever to show how imaginative kids are. Mm -hmm. And like her creativity, she's still writing, like rewriting the present in her own head as it's happening. Like, no, that's not Mr. So-and-so. That's, you know, I forget the example, but it's sort of like a way also for her to self-soothe. Like she's kind of moving through her day. She's really probably stressed out and disappointed about the situation, but she's kind of making light of her reality through these kind of creative exercises. And I love too when, so she goes downstairs after that iconic dusting scene of like putting her dad's socks on over her shoes and like going down the hallway that way. And I'm like, wow, should I be doing that? Should I be adopting that practice in my own life? I don't know. Maybe? No. Okay. I mean, I'll take that feedback. <laughs> but doesn't seem super effective. It does feel fun. She gets downstairs and the mom is making breakfast and she's like, you need to help me. Breakfast on deck is oatmeal with a canned peach on top for all the boarders. Would you eat that breakfast, Allison? It is much better than what I eat at present. So, yes. What is what is your breakfast these days? Uh, I'm going to plead the fifth. No. Um, okay. <laughs> I buy croissants a lot. I buy croissants a lot. Croissants are way better. What are you talking about? Well, it's that or nothing. And I'm usually eating the croissant at like 10 or 11 in the morning at work under a bit of like chaos. Um, I was Fair. struck by the mother's need to have everything still look really good. And I think that's going to yes. be a through line. And Kit is learning that they're trying to get even more people. And Kit's sort of agitated by that. But the mother has set up like a pretty formal looking dining experience. And I think there's an element of this coming through, which is 
the family doesn't want to have anyone bored. They want working people. They want people who will pay, including the Howards, very soon. Um, But this kind of like pressure to still maintain like the trappings of middle class as much as possible. And something that would be cool would be her mentioning like she kind of just seems to know these tricks and it would be fascinating to have down the line is that because when she was younger there wasn't as much money or is that because she's listening to a radio program or reading newspaper articles that teach her these tricks to make it look like there's more food than there is instead Mm. we kind of get it that she just intuitively knows how to do this when honestly in that era that was a huge thing right like how to keep up appearances she probably got taught that somewhere um but i thought that whole scene was really fascinating because it looked almost like a nice B&B. Yeah, I thought the thriftiness of that scene, like you're supposed to see how much the mom has leaned into this like new normal. And there would probably have been like things where she could have picked up those kinds of skills. And I thought the emphasis on appearances was really interesting. And we can kind of like keep referring to this, but um, the focus on like the visual culture of what the Great Depression looks like and like keeping up appearances for other people in your community, like, as we'll see, like becomes important. I thought that breakfast sounded good to me. I eat oatmeal every morning usually or cereal. But um, so I was like, good on you, mom. That's great. But I thought like it was interesting that there's no discussion about Kit playing a really central role in this. And you see kind of Kit resenting having to labor. So it's sort of like she's mourning the loss of like a purely leisure filled childhood. And you kind of see that pivot of seriousness and the whole presentation of the tray, the fact that Kit brings it into Mm -hmm. the room with all the borders at the table kind of really symbolizes how important she is to it. And I love that even in that moment, she's looking at all the borders around the table, including two nurses, and she's imagining like what their lives must be like and wondering, you know, what stories they have to tell. And then she has to stop herself because she doesn't want to include them in her fantasy life because she hates that they're there. Um, And I really love that we get that interiority into her head of how she's even trying to limit her own kind of natural instinct toward creativity to live up to her, you know, predisposition to be against this new normal. Like it's, I felt very real for a child to be like, I'm not even going to give them the benefit of wondering what their lives are like. Yeah. Amazing line on page 11. Kit scolded herself for being curious. Miss Hart and Miss Finney must remain blank pages. And later on, uh, she's sort of like reflecting, um, they would probably all turn out to be dull anyway, just as disappointing as tidy Mrs. Howard and skinny Sterling. They were not friends. And that changes by the end of the book as she develops a different relationship with Sterling, something that isn't, you know, called out as much as it could be be and not that it needs to be. She's literally serving a classmate who she doesn't really care for and she thinks of herself as superior to. And we quickly learn that when she is at school, people are speculating about that relationship. And to Kit's credit, Kit does not go out of her way to ever create any kind of like shame for Sterling, but other people are very eager to do that because they know that they are only staying with this family because they don't have other options. 
Yeah, and I think that that's that's what really throws contrast into like the focus on appearances for like the China that the mom serves breakfast in and the maintaining this whole facade their whole family is doing, as we'll learn, especially the dad. But because when kid goes to school, every kid there knows everything that has happened in her family. They all know the dad lost his job. One person makes note of the fact that he spent down their savings so he wouldn't have to lay anyone off. And everything knows everything about Sterling's family and every family in the class that's been affected by what's going on. So it's interesting to think about like Cincinnati is like a big city or it's like an actual city, but it feels very small because everybody seems to know like all this gossip about everyone else's business. It's also so many mirrors between this book and both Felicity and Molly, especially Molly, where mothers are expected to like keep up the home at any cost. Mm. Like mothers are expected to keep that going and to maintain a standard. And in both of those other contexts where there's a war as opposed to a depression, it's like the father will have to step up and change his life drastically. And that will probably mean leaving. Or in the case of Apprentice Ben, that means him leaving for war. Um, but the idea that the dad would voluntarily leave the family to go to Chicago, that seed gets planted because Sterling actually lies. Sterling has taken the typewriter that Kit uses and written a fake letter from his father and slipped emergency funds into it, pretending that that money has been sent from a job in Chicago. And I kind of love that moment because Sterling has been portrayed in a really negative way, right? Like the fact that he has something that he's struggling with medically, there's like not a lot of positive descriptions of him, right? Like Kit doesn't think highly of him. No one is reaching out to really, um, well, she's nice to him in book one, but we're not getting a lot of positive descriptions. And he basically tricks everyone at the table into thinking this is real and tricks his mother into finally paying rent to kind of restore the family pride. I was really happy to see that because I don't think that he's had like a moment yet. I love that scene because it's so dramatic. Like yeah. this is one of possibly <laughs> the most dramatic breakfast scenes I've ever been a party to where it's like everyone's at breakfast. First of all, we get Kit saying to herself, "My his delicate digestion, my eye, because the dad kind of surreptitiously tries to give Sterling his toast. And the Mrs. Howard is like, oh, like, thank you. And but he doesn't eat that much. And then it's like he's eaten everything. So that's like, OK, what's going on with this child? Is he OK? Like, what's going on? The dad is also playing his own mind games because he's like, oh, no, I don't need the toast because I'm going to have a big lunch today when I meet a friend. And it's like, OK, like more on that later. Then this letter arrives and it like sends everyone over the edge. They're like, oh, my God, like, what is this? And it's from his dad and it's two $10 bills, as you're saying. And the mom automatically gives one of them to Kit's mom as back rent, basically. And it's like the the machinations that this kid went through to create this moment where he had to pretend to be his own father and whatever feelings he's feeling about like not actually hearing from his real dad it's like this is so much and also like just being real like i think we kind of like threw some appropriate questions at mrs howard like are, is she for real in this? Like, she doesn't have any more follow-up questions. I think well, she's in on a performance. I think she's in on a performance because we learn later that Sterling is like, oh, yeah, I've offered her this $20 many times and she's turned me down. Mm -hmm. And then it's like the next day you get a letter in the mail with the same $20 and you're not like, huh, I wonder if this is related to the same 20 that Sterling offered me yesterday. And it's like, probably is, ma'am. Like... <laughs> 
Well, we go from this meal to a hotly charged debate in the classroom. Chapter two is called Pilgrims and Indians. And it's like, we are going from one fire to another. Like, you think the climax of this book, this is a spoiler for you potentially, we think the climax is Kit discovering that her father is actually struggling and eating one meal a day at the soup kitchen. Wrong. Chapter two, we have a fight over indigenous colonial relations that are actually also about like just the arc of American history between Kit and like a bad boy in the classroom. This is a great, his name is Roger. This is a great example of like Valerie is going to vow. Like she's going to give us a boy as a locus of trouble to like target. This scene jumps right out the window, which is her specialty as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you think you're having like, (laughs) you know, it starts off where she's talking, introducing her teacher, Mr. Fisher, and you find out that, like, you know, she originally thought she was on his bad sign because he called on her to read and in class previously, and she had no clue what they were page they were on because she read ahead to, quote, um, think up better endings to the stories, which is, like, classic kit. Great. And then it's like, no, we get into this debate about, like, what was the origin story of Thanksgiving? And what's that kid's name? Roger. The kid. Roger. So Roger is like, <laughs> he puts out his own history point, like first. He he was described as a show-offy boy. And he's like, the first Thanksgiving was in 1621. The pilgrims invited the Indians to a feast to celebrate their successful harvest. We have turkey at Thanksgiving because the pilgrims served the Indians for wild turkeys. And we call it Thanksgiving because the Indians were thankful to the pilgrims for being generous and sharing their food. Yeah, Kit interjects and she says, Roger's got the story backwards. And it's kind of funny that, like, Trip puts us right into a social studies moment, whereas with Molly, she made her try to endure math, right? Like, that was tough for everybody. <laughs> we've yeah. gotten something kind of different. I will say, if you're looking for a very accessible book that speaks to this, that's very recent, um, Chris Newell and Winona Nelson's If You Live During the Plymouth Thanksgiving is, like, compact, mm-hmm. accessible, will give you this history. Um Kit, in a fascinating turn, says the pilgrims would have starved to death if it weren't for the Indians. The Indians taught them to plant corn, on and on. As Kit spoke, she realized that this year, more than ever before, she had tremendous sympathy for the Indians. She knew how it felt to have a bunch of strangers living with you and eating your food and expecting your help when you didn't want them there in the first place. And I was like, and like... There is a classic American girl turn where, you know, you're getting some, like, thoughtful engagement with American history. And then Kit is like, but what if colonization was about me? (laughs) I get it what it is to be colonized, even though I'm a colonizer. It's it's a real wild turn. It took me back to that episode of Saved by the Bell where Zach dresses up like his, air quotes, Indian ancestor. Yes. Which is, like, truly one of the most unhinged episodes of TV I've ever seen in my life. Um, It was a while. It's like, do you think Val in that moment was like, white kids will never understand what we've done to the Indians unless I have them imagine themselves into their head? So I think something very telling on this same page is when Ruthie says, when hobos come to our back door, my mother always gives them sandwiches and coffee. And I think something that's like a bit odd and goes back and forth in this book is 
All of the children are then prompted to bring in food for a food drive, which presumes that they have extra food for this and that they themselves are not recipients of any kind of mutual aid or support from the community. And I think that that's something like that in light of their debate over like the indigenous encounter with, you know, the Puritans like during that moment, Part of what's really strange about this book is like people's economic situations have changed and yet they are fully unwilling to actually grapple with their own shame or fear of not being middle class or like not being comfortable. Um, Like in the school setting, it's totally presumed, even though all of this evidence is coming out, that everyone is still going to be fine enough to participate And Ruthie raising her hand and saying, like, of course, like, the right thing to do is to give food to these people. Kit and Sterling and others, and possibly Roger, who really knows, are, like, barely scraping by. And I think that's why Roger's commentary that, like, the Puritans or the Pilgrims are, like, flush with excess. And that's why they're helping the indigenous people is, like, yes, and it's happening again. Like, this delusional break with reality is happening over and over. Um, Like, his exceptionalist read of that meal, it's like, babe, we're repeating it with the food drive. Yeah, like, there's you guys like don't have real, food. <laughs> it's it's insane. Like there's some real delusional stuff going down in this classroom that's like probably coming from the parents, but it does really echo to me the Josefina book where she breaks the ceramic and is like shame, 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 and we see how she deals with shame. And I feel like this entire book is like how do white middle class people in Cincinnati in 1934 deal with shame? Like feeling shame for structural issues outside of their control that feel for which they feel personally responsible. And whose job is it to help them, basically? And no one is dealing with this in a health... It feels like no one's really dealing with this in a healthy way. Like, Roger's calling them bums in the next, like, line of that scene. And then Ruthie is like, no, we should feel sorry for them. It's not their fault. And she's kind of coming with, like, more upper-middle-class pity as benevolence or, like, philanthropy. And it's like everyone's response is not great. Like Kit goes straight to a place of rage, which I can understand. It's like she's not a Leo, but she could be like very passionate. More important that people know she's not married to Sterling, which is a thing Roger keeps saying. It's just like, how do you negotiate shame? Like what is the appropriate as a family, as a community? And I don't think anyone here really has the answer. I mean, we get to a place of mutual aid and support, which is really good, but in this moment with these kids like where is the teacher he doesn't really play an effective role here it's just it's awkward it's uncomfortable well his line is i know most of us don't have much food to spare and i think this is something that like again is very much a reflection far more of a 1990s classroom than a 1930s classroom because the back of the book is all about how teachers themselves had their pay cut sometimes down to like a quarter of what it had been that there were you know huge fractures where people were saying that married women shouldn't even be allowed to teach because they have another income and only single women should get to keep their jobs so there's all these things going on teachers you know panicking over losing their positions And he's kind of coming in as like keeping up appearances and literally for the rest of the book, like carrying out this pageant 
right? Like, and the fact that Kit questions things and kind of acts out eliminates her from the pageant, which I think is kind of like a very poetic and like interesting comment. Um, But they're always kind of talking in a very Samantha way about people experiencing poverty as something happening outside of the classroom. And right. the peak into the past tells us that that's not true. That classroom was that classrooms were spaces in which poverty was very obvious. And mm-hmm. there would have been places like it was striking to me that Dad is the one who eats in the middle of the day because that's when he can get food. There are places at this time already, and definitely going forward, where school is the place where people access food. Right. Right, right. And that was already happening. That is not something that was invented. But I think the notion of there being shame around that as opposed to it becoming a new normal in a lot of communities, I don't think that's a reflection of the 1930s. I really don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, we still have people like freaking out over funded lunch programs at school, public schools. And so I kind of think it fits to that same like neoliberal model um, that you were talking about earlier. I found the peak into the past in this book, like, absolutely insane. And just, like, the focus on education was interesting and, like, makes sense for, like, a, a story that's allegedly based in school when actually I think this is about the family. Yeah. And there's something, like, there's a breadline photo, and it got me thinking about, like, how we represent the Great Depression through, like, photos of men in breadlines and, like, what we're supposed to do with that. And I just kind of feel like the situation of people reading this book, it's like if you were, say, a middle class reader in 2000 reading this book, it's like, are these photos then an archive or are they also kind of an invitation to the same like looking down on people to feel better about yourself that like Ruthie and others are doing in the book in this like meta way of like almost like, I don't know, like an atrocity Olympics or something? Well, I think part of where we still live in the world that gave us this book is poverty in our culture is you know, to be represented or to be seen is supposed to be a certain thing, right? It's supposed to be as obvious and legible as the breadline. It's striking that the dad is basically not eating at the breakfast and no one is questioning or, right? Like, Like there's all these other things. We don't actually know what's going on with Sterling. We also don't know that he's he's not small for any other reason than they haven't had enough food to eat for years. Like we don't actually know. And and I think something about the breadline is like, it's, it's iconic. It's a visual that people can immediately grapple with. And today Mm -hmm. I know where I live, food kitchens tend to be hidden. They tend to be big warehouses that make it so that people don't need to have to see it or cards are disguised in a certain way so people can access food or supplies. Um, But I think part of what's happening in the peak into the past is they're talking about classrooms as spaces where teachers are trying their absolute best, just like they do now, to make children feel valued, to keep up pageants, to keep up things that matter. But they themselves are having, like, to deal with poverty. And Mm -hmm. I, I think having the teacher sort of, like, let these kids, like, riff and go off on what they think about poor people again, is like very much a moment from our world when most educators are forced to live at a poverty line. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, interesting, right? As if like he's not, (laughs) like all of these people are talking about this thing as an other, as if it is not actually part of their experience. And I do think part of that is like 
an American girlification thing of like everyone still looks clean. Everyone still looks like they have everything they need. There's still new outfits for school. And I'm curious like where we're going to go with that with the family because the winter of 1932, which is coming, is like the worst part besides 1938. It's like the worst part. So I hear what you're saying. And I think part of it is this dissonance of, well, poverty only looks this one way. And so because she has an outfit for school, she's not poor. Yeah, it's kind of like a a passing, like an economic passing the whole family is trying to participate in. And they're even doing it with each other. Like the dad is passing with his daughter. Like, oh, no, I'm not like going to a soup kitchen in the middle of the day and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, I think it's also just interesting, like thinking about cleanliness, like the Federal Writers Project, which starts in 1936, which is one of the programs designed to kind of like put people, air quotes, put people back to work to like air quotes, earn aid, like one of FDR's programs. When they go into people's homes and do interviews about their experiences, something they frequently note is the cleanliness of of the home and of the people in the home. I read one of a woman who lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, just kind of randomly, and they were really like negatively describing her outfit, that she was dirty, that her apartment was dirty and she had two, like three and four year old sons and like just really commenting on like her hygiene, like letting the boys like put their fingers in like cookie batter she was making and like that was wrong and like the curtains were dirty and like we're supposed to draw something from this. And I think that put this book and its emphasis on cleanliness and you know, well-meaning appearances or like everything is fine with like the China out at breakfast and all of this. I think it really emphasizes why they must have thought that was important, so important. If you flip through and we'll post pictures, the Welcome to Kit's World book, one of the things that's like honestly kind of amazing and that is borne out throughout this book is the family is able to imagine new and additional schemes to make money because they have a huge house right? Like they have a house that can accommodate basically double the amount of people from what had been living there like six months ago because they can think about converting a sleeping porch because they have one. And there's a layout of Kit's house in that book that shows like all the different things people are doing with it. I'm like, this is basically like a mansion, right? Like this is- Oh my God. But when you think of all the people in the house and even when you think of like all of what she is able to do with the attic, yes, she has problems. The water is coming through. Kit is still able to like live in this very large house. And I I found the conversation on page 50 where she basically confronts her dad, right? Just this moment of like absolute shock and terror upon learning that her father is receiving bread at the soup kitchen. And she is the one to actually hand it over to him. And she asks dad at home when they're kind of like reeling from this spurious uh, experience, are we, are we really that poor? And it's almost a whisper, we're told. Yes, we are. But I didn't want any of you to know. And I'm like thinking again about the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Howard, the relationship between Kit's dad and mom. And it's like, is this because it's from the point of view of a child that no one is talking about money? Or is this actually a comment on something bigger that essentially everyone in this book is kidding themselves or someone else about money? Yeah. 
you kind of have to wonder if like as a survival tactic, they're just kind of like disassociating or like, well, like it's not as bad as we think it is. Or, you know, like, is there communication between the members of this family? Like that really hit me with like, so we've kind of glossed over. There was a plot line at the school where Sterling makes for their Thanksgiving pageant. Like they discover he's an amazing artist and he like draws these turkeys for the pageant and painting them. There's a fight that ensues between Kit, Ruthie, Sterling, and Roger. Paint is spilled. And as a punishment, they have to go to the soup kitchen, which is where Kit, they have to bring the items they collect to the soup kitchen, which is where Kit stumbles on her dad. So after that, they're like thinking about using extra wood that Ruthie's family has lying around from a new construction project, which tells you something about what these people have money for. Mafia? Oh. And, oh, okay, as a quick aside, when I was looking at photos, Al Capone funded a soup kitchen in Chicago in this period. So it's like, where is Sterling's dad? Is there a what dad? What is he involved in? Like, I mean, how how high does the con go with the letter? <laughs> I mean, did he ever exist? Has anyone ever seen this guy? Mrs. Howard was like, Lammy. I haven't. We didn't get into that. <laughs> I, she calls him Lammy multiple times. I clocked the Lammy. I do think that he is a supporter of Mariah Carey even Thank now. You. I think Sterling outlives them all because he is a good person and a good artist. And I think they don't deserve him. They don't. He's somewhere listening to I Still Believe, Mariah's <laughs> cover. He's, they really don't. He, I said to you off here, I was like, this man, this child is eight or 150. Like, he's an old soul. He is too pure for this world. He's so sweet. Such a sweetie pie. Like, like, but also heartbreaking. Like, he's parenting his parent. Like, yeah. coming up with basically mail fraud schemes so that your mom <laughs> will accept $20 that she definitely will know comes from you is is so beyond but also it's like this is what trauma looks like for kids where it's like they have so much trauma that as adults they can't it keeps coming back like you know i mentioned my grandmother like my grandmother grew up very poor in the depression and was poor before the depression as she would love to say to people but basically she was not poor as an adult and or as an elderly person and she but she was always in that mindset like she was forever like okay I'm coming to your house with like a 10 roll paper towel thing I saw on a discount. Like I have a coupon, I have this and that like scarcity mindset. And it's like, you can see how that would happen reading this book with these kids. It's like, they, this is not going to leave them. Well, it might leave Ruthie because I don't know that Ruthie's life has well, really changed. No. Ruthie's kind of like, okay, bummer, you're, you're dad. So your dad. Ruthie is a Samantha adjacent. She's like a Samantha son. And that's yes. not a dig, but she is because Ruthie does recognize that she has more and that she has an opportunity to be of assistance, not just to Kit, but to her family. And I do think it's fascinating the way that the two of them pivot from thinking about their treehouse and essentially realizing that if they add to the family's real estate in that way, their mom might just rent it out and they're like, okay, that's not gonna work. But thinking that they could use that extra lumber to do multiple things, to enclose the sleeping porch, to add like even more space, but also to essentially hire her dad, to essentially give Kit's father a reason to work. And I think there is a very like, Protestant ethic thing happening here. And that's not a compliment of like, dad will feel like he's totally worthless unless he is serving this family through yes. work. Like that yes. is an unchecked assumption of this book. And I am I am not saying that just to be critical for its own sake, but I think that that is baked into this so deeply. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the shame comes from is that 
you know, your material situation is somehow linked to your behavior. And, you know, if you don't have work to give your life meaning or dignity, then like, what are you supposed to do? And maybe you should feel ashamed. And, you know, you can just see how toxic that is in, in sort of like the emotional dynamics of the family. We also learned that Kit, in the spirit of Paramore, makes the hard times news. Um, I love that song. Oof. And yes. so she creates uh, a series of wanted ads. And I do like about this, like the way that like children pick up on things in their culture, right? That Kit is aware of like what real newspapers have. So she makes these wanted ads um, and basically makes them pitch to the existing tenants or boarders and then has uh, wanted immediately, talented handyman, wanted neat and tidy lady to help with housework, and then wanted kids with wagon. She's like, we can all be involved. (laughs) I do think this is uh, in a lot of ways like a far more interesting plot line than like looking back when Molly was collecting scrap for the war effort or like her kind of like half-baked efforts at like being useful. Kit honestly like always stays true to herself but does things that genuinely lift other people up like hiring Sterling to make the art like keeping with Ruthie to do this and also knowing that a huge part of the joy she shared with her father was handing him a paper she wrote for him and that now that he doesn't go to work she doesn't feel like she has anything to share I think that was like an extremely sweet scene and like truly like this author at her best like that that was like a really awesome way to tie up this book yeah I think she's very good at like finding ways for the main character to feel empowered and like they can make some meaningful difference in their family or somebody's life and as you're saying I think it's it's nicer to read like I mean Molly was basically trying to take out Hitler one tap dance at a time (laughs) and you know look like maybe she did that but with Kid it's like we've seen this really compelling you know her creativity or imagination and her love of writing and storytelling and I think it's a real gift to her that she gets to communicate all of these like like loose ends being tied up at the end of the book like dad we're gonna hire you because also I'm like what is the state of these people's marriage that we get to the end of the book and the mom is like when kids like here's my idea like we hire dad to use the wood to you know insulate or build out the sleeping porch we can board more people and the mom is like that's okay but she was like but here's the thing dad needs to be told quote in the right way or he, he won't feel like he'll feel emasculated. He'll feel even more ashamed, like whatever. And so kids, kids like, got it, mom. And then she makes hard times to the newspaper the next morning. But it's like, what's up with the mom that she's like, I'm going to deputize my eight-year-old or like whatever to like, is she just basically like, I think that this is what Kit needs right now to feel important. So I'm going to let her have this. And I think my husband will accept it more easily coming from her. Or is she like, I don't want to talk about to my husband about this because like we can't even speak about money at this point. I think it's a classic trope in American Girl books that mothers wield a ton of influence but have to be very careful with how they use their power and they find it more like it like easy or just like their fastest route to actually getting things done is having their children say it in a cute way. And I think there's always sort of an attempt to draw like a generational distinction. Like mom is old school and mom isn't going to tell her husband what to do, but plucky Kit Kidridge can. Right. 
It made me think about like Sleepless in Seattle and how the kid sends in the message as his dad to the radio show that starts the whole thing. And it's like, you know, kids communicating with their parents in weird ways or pretending to be them. It's like that is seemingly a trope. Like the kids are the ones with the wisdom and they have to like pull the parents along. Yes, that Kit is ultimately the one that is, like, holding this family together. That's why I did find that sort of write-up really funny, because Charlie is essentially irrelevant to this book. It doesn't really <laughs> seem to he matter. He, he made the headline. He's what, in the first page, and then he's, like, in the last page. That's it. Yeah, he's kind of getting Kit going in the morning because she's having a hard time adjusting. Like, I know that the next book is when stuff between... Ruthie and Kit gets very real because their Christmases are going to be different. I will say, I think this is the first time that we've explicitly had an American girl whose fortunes have gone down. Like, not just that life has gotten harder, but in like a very explicit way. Because Mm -hmm. Caroline, her life is kind of on the skids. I can't wait for American Girl 2008. I mean, that's another declension narrative where it's like, you know, I thought it was all in sync concerts and, you know, Disney Channel. And then, Dad, how was work at Enron? Well, bad news. No, I was reading a timeline of finances in the year 2000 and in the year 1999. I do think part of what was driving this interest in the depression was this notion that so many people were experiencing prosperity in the 1990s, but it was, you know, and it it has been always, but it was becoming so disparate, right? Well, who's Mm. like, who's really benefiting from the tech and the dot-com boom? And 2000 is when Bill Gates kind of like moves over within Microsoft. There's there's all these like huge things happening in the tech world and all these anxieties. And I think part of the allure for someone to buy a kit coverage then would be to say like, well, remember when people were like, you know, didn't even have enough for oatmeal in the morning. You know, I think it's mm-hmm. trying to draw a distinction as if poverty only looks like one thing. I will also know one of my favorite books of all time was made into a film with Natalie Portman when this came out, which is Home is Where the Heart Is. I love that story. Wow. If people want to talk about it with me, they should reach out. I wow. read that book on the bus in middle school, and I was like, I'm changed. Could I live in a Walmart? No. I mean, if we had to, I think we probably could. I was disappointed by that movie because I didn't realize Stockard Channing was only going to be in it in a limited amount. Like, I wanted more Stockard. Like, I read that book as if I needed to know how to live in a Walmart. I mean, who's to say we don't need to know that? Like, it hasn't been demonstrated to me yet by adult life that that isn't a useful survival skill just to have in your back pocket. But, I mean, Natalie Portman, like, you really did something with that movie. She did. did. She still. I saw her. She was doing an interview with Ashton Kutcher, both on running on treadmills for what's the spinning company? Oh, Peloton. Yeah. They do treadmills as well, which I think they had a big lawsuit, but apparently they're powering through that. And they were interviewing each other about how they both basically made the same movie, like No Strings Attached. And I forgot what the other one was. And I was like, how is celebrity reduced to this? Like, you went from where the heart is, many different things, even your Jackie biopic, whatever. Now you're running on a treadmill being interviewed and interviewing Ashton Kutcher. Like, how do we get here? Like, what's happening? Probably to quote Kit Kidridge, you would do it too for a check. I don't know. Like running just to run. I'm like, if somebody said to me, look, 
Mary, let's get it out of here. We're going to run possibly one mile. There is a Dairy Queen at the end of this and we're Ubering home. I would be like, great. Thank you. I'm with you. Someday if I organize a fun run, it would be in that format where it's like, we just know this is one way. Then there's a treat at the end and you can walk home. You can take an Uber. No judgments. That's my ideal setup. I want to say shout out to our listeners who, uh, you know, who are overlapping, who also love Peloton. We have people on our Discord who are Peloton users avidly. And so they talk about American Girl and they coordinate rides with each other. Mary, if people want to get in on that or they want to talk about Claudie or they want to join one of our watch alongs or they want to hear us talk about other kinds of books like Ancestor Trouble or Stone Words. How do people do that? So you would just go to the link on our website or on our socials to our Patreon and sign up and it's only $3 a month. You know, we used to, we call it Duncan Shiro level. There's only one level and we say that's Tobias Duncan every month, but it's like those prices have gone up at Duncan, but we're still keeping it the same. (laughs) And for $3 a month, you can get into all kinds of conversations. Like we've had great convos about all kinds of pop culture things. People have been talking about the whole Try Guy thing, which I didn't really understand. I don't like them, but I do love the scandal. So I've learned a lot. That was great. We might have a Taylor Swift kind of PowerPoint party in light in advance of her midnight's release or around then. So we might have people apply to give PowerPoints on what they feel are important information because some people came out of the woodwork and very bravely and proud of them said, I don't under I don't know anything about Taylor Swift, but I want to. So we're doing something with that. <laughs> but we're gonna watch Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, a classic. We're gonna watch The Adams Family from 1990. We have a lot going on there. Um so please join us on Patreon. It is very fun. I was gonna say something else about Patreon. Oh Thank you to the listeners who, one listener in particular, and I can't remember your handle right now, we have a genealogy channel and she put a link in there to StoryCorps to instructions to interview members of your family because I talked about my grandmother last episode and she's kind of doing this really cool project of interviewing her own grandmother and other relatives and wanted to invite other people on that journey if they're interested. So that's all in the genealogy channel. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us on another episode of our show. Again, we're so excited about this new change, and thanks to everyone who helps us spread the word about it and continues to support us here. If you want to get in touch, please find us on Instagram at Dolls of Our Lives Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Dolls Lives Pod. You can find us at Dolls of Our Lives Podcast on Facebook and also email us at dollsofourlivespod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, and thanks to all of you already doing so, we have such a great time in our Discord community and in watch-alongs, and you get an extra episode each month on something that we deem to be within the world of our show. You can find us at patreon.com slash dollsofourlivespod. And you'll find us soon on our new website, dollsofourlivespod.com. So please check us out there for all kinds of supplemental resources, including some great guides by our intern, Anna Lee. Last but not least, I want to dedicate this show to Angela Lansbury. When we recorded, she was very much still with us. And I, you know, just delight in her and Murder, She Wrote is my favorite TV show as you may know. So I'm particularly hit hard by her loss. I just think she was such an incredible talent and just want to encourage everyone to check out, you know, something she made, whether it's Gaslight, Murder, She Wrote, or Bedknobs and Broomsticks, a classic from my childhood. Is she Kit grown up? Did Jessica Fletcher emerge from Cincinnati, Ohio? 
move to Cabot Cove in her retirement, change her name, and become a mystery writer? I don't know, but I would love to hear from you about this. So if you want to get in touch with Allison and I, please find Allison at Allison Horrocks on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram or at Mary Mahoney 123 on Twitter, although you're more likely to hear from me on Instagram. But please check out our new socials. Thanks again for your supporting our show. And we're so excited to see you on our next episode, our 100th episode. So see you real soon. Bye.